Father, we're thankful to gather here and have your word preached to us, have it wash over us and sanctify us, cleanse us. Think of that language in Ephesians 5 about Christ doing that with the church. Help us not to take for granted the wonderful blessing or grace even it is for us to be here, knowing there are others that might not have this same privilege in their lives. I pray, Lord, that you would use this time fully for your glory, that Christ would be exalted, that all the wonderful truths that are contained in these verses would be brought forth to your people, that you would just use me as your vessel for this time. I spent this week studying, but if there's anything, so I do pray you bring my notes to, my, to mind. Hopefully these are the things you want me to share with your people. If there's anything not in my notes that you'd have me deliver, Lord, I pray that you would, you would do so. Just let this be a time that you meet with them and that you exalt Christ. Give us a full understanding. Help us to be uh, protected from distractions. I know our lives are busy. I know I say this frequently, Lord, but it's, it's easy to come here and to not take full advantage of this time by letting our minds go elsewhere, Lord. And so I pray that our minds, and even more so our hearts, would be focused on you. Turn them to, toward yourself and use us for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to see all of you. Title of this morning's sermon is Jesus Authority Question. Jesus Authority Question. On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse, and we find ourselves at Luke 20. Henry Kissinger, who passed away last month, he served as Secretary of State and National Security Advisor during Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford's presidencies. This past week, I read an article that he wrote about the seven people he believed to be the most powerful in history. Here's his list of the seven most powerful people in history. Number seven, he said, any American president since 1945. Any guesses why he probably said that? Because this, this is the guy with his finger on the red button, right? Number six, he said, President Theodore Roosevelt. Number five, he said, Napoleon Bonaparte, the emperor of the French empire. Number four, he said, Gandhi, the leader of the Indian independence movement. Number three, he said Peter the Great, the Tsar of the Russian Empire. Number two, he said, if I'm pronouncing this right, Qin Shi Huang. From 259 to 210 BC, he was the emperor of a unified China. Any guesses for number one? Don't say Jesus. Huh? Someone say Hitler. He said Julius Caesar from 100 BC to 44 BC, the emperor of the Roman Empire. So it is a good thing that I was not asked to think of the seven most powerful people in history for two reasons. First, I don't think I would have guessed many of the names on the list. Considering most of you didn't yell out number one, it's probably good that you were not asked to write this list as well. And then the second reason it would have been bad for me to write this list is the person who should be number one is not even mentioned, and that is Jesus. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So nobody's ever had more authority than Jesus because he has all authority. Individuals who have any authority only have it because it has been given to them from Christ. But you would not know that from this morning's account, or you would not know that Jesus has as much authority as he does from this morning's account, because as we'll see, the religious leaders didn't think that Jesus even had the, temp the authority to cleanse the temple and then begin teaching there. The context for this account is important. So if you look one chapter to the left at Luke 19, briefly look at Luke 19 with me, you can see we spent lots of weeks 
preaching through these verses, so I'll go through them quickly, but you need to remember the context for this morning's verses. So in verses 28 through 40 is the triumphal entry. After the triumphal entry in verses 41 through 44, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And what day of the week was this? This is Sunday, right? He's making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem to begin Passion Week or Holy Week or the last week of his earthly life leading up to the crucifixion. Or we call it Palm Sunday when he makes his triumphal entry. In verses 45 and 46, more than likely this was on Monday, Jesus cleansed the temple, which was our last sermon in Luke. And this, how did it go over with the religious, how would you suppose it went over with the religious leaders when Jesus cleansed the temple? Went over very poorly with them. Not only did it make them look bad, it also caused them lots of money and caused them lots of money during the week that they expected to make the most money because people were coming from all over Judea to celebrate Passover, would need to buy lambs that were without blemish, and then Jesus drives out all those money changers who would exchange money at exorbitant rates and uh, drove out the sellers and the animals who were charging exorbitant rates for the, <clears throat> for the animals. And then if that was not enough, Jesus called all the individuals that he drove out robbers or thieves. So he didn't really pull any punches. Look at Luke 19, 47. Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on Jesus' words. So just keep in mind, these verses say that the religious leaders wanted to murder Jesus, but they couldn't because of his popularity. They couldn't directly get rid of Jesus because of all the people uh, around him or in support of him. And so let me say like this, because they can't get rid of him directly, they want to get rid of him indirectly. Because they can't directly murder him because of his popularity, they're going to indirectly try to get rid of him by discrediting him. So after Jesus cleanses the temple, even though the religious leaders are trying to murder him, he decides that he's actually going to stay in the temple if you remember we talked about this he sets up his headquarters kind of have that analogy of like going behind enemy lines and just staying there so the head temple just keep this in mind becomes like jesus's headquarters for teaching and preaching during that last week of his earthly life until celebrating passover then being betrayed and crucified now before we jump into this morning's verses i want you to ask or i want to ask you to think about what it looked like i will probably always continue to tell you you get much more out of your bible reading the more that you envision or picture what scripture describes when you're in narratives this is one of the beauties of these accounts that you get to um, imagine what this actually looked like and so let's do this with jesus cleansing the temple he bursts in and then we know by looking at the details in all three synoptic gospels that he drives out everyone who's selling and buying it must have been obvious that we're not told he was angry but i suspect it was very evident how angry he was or hostile he was toward the people doing this he overturns the tables of the money changers he knocks over the chairs of those who are selling pigeons if this was anything like the first time he did this remember it's like bookends on his three and a half year ministry he cleansed the temple twice the first time when his ministry began and now when his earthly ministry is coming to an end and the first time he even made a whip that he's chasing him out with so perhaps he did that this time as well mark eleven sixteen 16 says he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple 
so the temple could be a busy place with people carrying, I mean, just the money changers carrying money or people moving animals or tables or chairs. And it says that Jesus interrupts all of that. He will not let anyone move anything through the temple. And then he rebukes them for being thieves. After all that, he's bold enough to set up shop in the middle of the temple and begin teaching everyone. So it's like he drives everyone out and then he just starts preaching. Now, if you were watching this, what might you say? You might say, wow, this man has incredible authority to be doing something like this. You could be impressed or we could be impressed, especially if you love Christ. If you hate Jesus like the religious leaders, what might you say? You say, who does this guy think he is? Where does he get the authority to act like this? which is exactly what the religious leaders asked. Look at verse 1, Luke 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up, and then verse 2, they said to Jesus, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority to do these things. My suspicion, we don't know for sure, this is Tuesday. So Sunday's the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. Monday, he cleanses the temple. Tuesday, his authority is, this account, Tuesday, his authority is being questioned by the religious leaders. Notice the three groups that are mentioned. There's chief, in verse one, there's chief priests, there's scribes, there's elders. Because each of these groups were part of the Sanhedrin, more than likely, or the Jewish counselor, they met together to orchestrate this attack. So it would have been planned. Maybe Jesus sets up shop on Monday, and they gather perhaps Monday evening or Tuesday morning, deciding that they're going to come to him and question his authority like this. Now, something you need to know about these groups is they did not think that Jesus had the authority to be doing what he was doing, but they were completely convinced that they had the authority to do what they were doing. Let me tell you why they thought they had authority but did not think Jesus has authority. So the first group mentioned the chief priests. Where did priests get their authority? From the Mosaic law, right? It talks about the Levites, the temple workers, those who are descended from Aaron or the Aaronic priesthood could be priests. So the chief priests claim their authority from the Mosaic law. They look at Jesus and what tribe is Jesus from? Come on, we should have more people. Jesus is from what tribe? He's from Judah. So you've got the priests from Levi, and they look at this guy from Judah who's acting like a priest because who could go into the temple? Who had authority in the temple? Who could be teaching the law in the temple? Only the priests. So they see Jesus doing what a priest would do. Now, some of you in your minds, if you know your Bibles, you're saying, well, he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, fantastic. That blessed me to hear you guys say that. Well, they don't know anything about the Melchizedekian priesthood, or they, they should know. It's in Psalm 110, the discussion that the Messiah would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. They don't know this, or they don't give any credence to it, so they look at this guy from the tribe of Judah, and they do not believe that he has the Levitical rights to be a priest, to teach in the temple, to cleanse the temple, do all the things that he's doing. Second, the scribes. The scribes were the students of the law. Now, you won't know this as well as you know this about the priests, but the scribes 
declared their authority from the rabbis they quoted. Let me say that one more time. So the scribes established their authority by the rabbis that they quoted. The scribes were students of the law. They would read the writings of rabbis, kind of like the way we would read commentaries. And there's almost a sense in which we will do this as Bible teachers. When we're teaching something, we'll say, John MacArthur said this, right? Or we'll say, Charles Spurgeon said this. We'll give the name of some credible commentator to have some authority behind uh, our comments on God's word. And so these scribes would quote the rabbis. They defended their positions or demonstrated their authority that way. But now listen to this verse, Mark 1.22. They were established, excuse me, they were astonished at Jesus's teaching for he taught them as one who what? Had authority and not as the scribes. So when Jesus, now I used to misunderstand this verse. When it says to Jesus, because I heard someone early in my Christian life say this, and it just seems that whatever we hear early in our Christian life we, is like cemented in our minds, and we think that's true for as long as we live on this side of heaven. And so real early in my Christian life, someone was defending preaching very boldly or confidently or authoritatively because they said, Jesus preached with authority. You must preach with authority. I guess, I don't know what that meant. Do you scream at your congregation or something like that? We don't know what Jesus sounded like when he preached. We do know he didn't quote anyone because that's what this verse is actually saying. It says, they were astonished at Jesus' teaching for he taught them as one who had his own authority. That's why he didn't quote anyone. He had the authority to say, which makes sense. The word of God can teach the word of God, right? The word can preach the word without having to quote a, a human author to establish that authority. But Jesus could have preached very calmly. He could have preached very gently. We don't really know how he sounded when he preached. But the point I want you to notice is because Jesus did not quote any rabbis like the scribes did, the scribes did not think that Jesus had any authority. Third, you've got the elders of Israel. These were the, not, don't think of like church elders. These were the leaders of families or clans. They were usually chosen because of their experience and wisdom. They could point to their election or point to, their author to substantiate their authority. They could say, well, we were chosen for this. These people wanted us in this position. We were selected by the people. Now, who selected Jesus and don't say God the Father? You don't there is one person who's going to come up in a moment. But it looked like Jesus was, instead of selected rejected by many. Jesus doesn't have this large number of people who elected him. Now, he was popular, but he was mostly popular because people wanted to see miracles, or they wanted miraculous food given to them, or they're fascinated by him. But he wasn't elected the way that these elders were. In other words, he was actually rejected by the most prominent and respected people who would have looked like they could give him authority, which is the religious leaders themselves. So in other words, the individuals who looked like they would give Jesus authority by electing him, rejected him. That's the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, scribes, lawyers. So it doesn't look like Jesus has any authority. It gets even worse. Jesus has 12 disciples that he can point to. Now, I'm not trying to make a joke, but if people talked to him about his authority he had, and he pointed to the 12 disciples... 
Do you think people might laugh? Because these men were what? Beside fishermen. Peter, James, John, Andrew, fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector. So we don't know what the other disciples did, but we do know this. They were ordinary men. They were not men you pointed to when you wanted to establish your authority. If someone said, hey, why do you have the authority? Or who gave you the authority to be doing what you're doing? Peter, James, John, Andrew, Matthew. That's not going to go over with anyone. Because they had no authority themselves. So the chief priests, scribes, elders, confident in their authority, not afraid to confront Jesus about his perceived lack of authority. And here's how they try to trap Jesus with this question. Jesus can't say that he doesn't have authority. If Jesus acknowledges that he doesn't have authority, then he would not be justified in cleansing the temple, overthrowing the money changers and vendors, and then setting himself up like some prophet for everyone to hear. So he can't say he doesn't have authority, but he also can't say that he has authority from man because the temple was God's house. Jesus needed God's authority to cleanse it. There's no man that Jesus could point to to defend what he just did. Or I can even say it like this. Even if all these people, elders, chief priests, scribes, you bring in all the Sanhedrin, all the Jewish council, and you say all of these people support Jesus, he still would not have had the authority to do what he did because this was God's house and he needed God's authority to do this. So it looks like he does this without permission. So look at verse, so to me, I love to see Jesus in a seemingly impossible predicament, trapped by man's words, only to respond with some brilliant question that then traps them. And that's what we see. Look in verse 3 to see how Jesus responds. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or was it from man? So earlier I said that Jesus could not point to the 12 disciples, but I did tell you there was someone he could point to, and this is the individual. To establish his authority, Jesus could point to John the Baptist. John was well known as Jesus' forerunner. John was the one who introduced Jesus to the nation. You might wonder why Jesus asked them whether John's baptism was from God versus asking whether John himself was from God. Or in other words, why does Jesus ask about John's baptism versus simply asking about John? And the answer is because John's ministry, more than anything else, is associated with baptism. That's why we call him John the, <laughs> the Baptist. That's what he did. Asking about John's ministry was asking about the legitimacy of what he was doing as Jesus' forerunner, or asking about John's baptism is asking about John's legitimacy to reveal Jesus as the Messiah. And with this one short question, Jesus turned the tables on the religious leaders, and this brings us to lesson one. The religious leaders tried to trap Jesus, but he trapped them. The religious leaders tried to trap Jesus, but he trapped them. And they knew it. So listen to them discuss the dilemma they find themselves in with this one question that, that Jesus asked. Verse 5, they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say that it's from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? So if the religious leaders admit that John's baptism was from heaven, 
then people would surely ask, well, if his baptism is from heaven, then why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you believe what he was doing? If John's baptism is from heaven, why don't you believe when John says that Jesus is the Messiah? So they would be answering their one question, and they would be acknowledging Jesus' authority came from God. So Jesus asks this, and if they say, yes, John's baptism is from heaven, well, then now they have acknowledged or answered their own question by saying that Jesus himself is the Messiah, and so he has this authority from God. But now they explain the other side. They know they can't say that. So in verse 6, they said, but if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So now they say, well, we also can't say or deny John's baptism is from heaven because John was so popular with the people. I, I want you to remember one account. How did John the Baptist die? He boldly confronted Herod, who was despised by the people. So John was martyred, but he's also like a national hero because he stood up to the person that everyone hated and got killed for it. Nothing is going to set you down as a celebrity more than doing something like that. So John was because John wasn't loved because of his miracles, we don't have record of him performing any. Part of the reason he was so adored was because of his, the way he died, confronting Herod. He's like a national hero, and so the religious leaders know that they can't sound critical of John or say that his baptism's not from heaven. One of the keys to understanding Jesus' approach with this question, it's contained in the statement that the people unnoticed this. The people were convinced john was a prophet make sure you notice it says that the people were convinced john was a prophet now i'm not trying to be overly simple prophets speak for god john was jesus's forerunner who testified or spoke that jesus was the messiah so if john is a prophet then they should believe his testimony if they say that jesus is not the messiah now they're calling john a liar and they're going to upset all of the people because they'd be slandering God's prophet, which, I mean, notice this. We, you, you read it quickly, but they, they understood, the religious leaders understood that if they were to sound critical of John, John was so popular, the people would want to do what with the religious leaders? What does it say? Stone them, kill them. The religious leaders are like, we can't say anything bad about John. If we do, the people are going to want to kill us. So now you see the incredibly difficult position the religious leaders find themselves in just because of this one question that Jesus asks. So they don't like either of their answers, and so they come up with a third option, and what's that? Let's just play dumb. Let's just act like we don't know. And that's what they did. Look at verse 7. They answered that they didn't know where it came from. That was a lie. They did know. So you can tell how trapped they were by this response. Saying, humil or saying, I don't know, takes something. It takes humility, right? Saying, I don't know, takes humility. It acknowledges there's something you don't know. Now, if there's anyone in the Gospels who didn't have humility and wanted to appear to the people as though they know everything, it is the religious leaders. The reason I tell you that is I was reflecting this week that if there is anyone you would expect not to say, I don't know, it's them, but the other two options were so unattractive to them that they were willing to say something that they would never say otherwise 
because that was even more attractive than the other two things they could have said. And so that's how trapped they were that some of the proudest men in Scripture were willing to say, I don't know. Look how Jesus responds to their response. Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The religious leaders would not say Jesus is the Messiah. They also would not say John the Baptist is a false prophet. They say, I don't know. And so Jesus says, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, I'm not saying this is the case. In fact, in a moment, I'm going to tell you why this is not actually the case. But let's just be honest that on the surface, when Jesus says, I'm not going to answer your question, it looks like he's being what? Evasive. Or we could even say it looks like he might not have a good answer because why do we typically not answer questions? We're either being evasive or we simply don't know what to say. And so on the surface, it could kind of look like, I mean, if we're honest, this isn't a real highlight for Jesus. He looks like he doesn't have a good response, so he traps them and then tells them he's not going to answer their question, their question that would trap him. But that's not at all what's happening, and this brings us to lesson two. Jesus would not give what is holy to the dogs. Jesus would not give what is holy to the dogs. Jesus is not being evasive. He's not being like them, right? The religious leaders said, I don't know. And when Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you, in the back of your mind, you're kind of like, maybe Jesus doesn't know. And now suddenly Jesus kind of looks bad or looks as bad as the religious leaders, or looks like he doesn't know something, or looks like the religious leaders trapped him because he can't come up with a good response. The truth is, this response said lots. So first, this is a good example of Jesus doing what he preached. In Matthew 7, 6, he said, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs or swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Even though Jesus' response is short, it is very deep, and it did many things. So Jesus' response makes it look like the religious leaders lacked the knowledge and wisdom to question him. By not responding, Jesus communicated that the religious leaders did not have the knowledge or wisdom to question him. It's like Jesus said, if you cannot even answer this basic foundational question I am asking about John's baptism, then you have absolutely no business questioning me at all. Second, Jesus' response revealed the religious leaders did not have a heart for truth. By not answering them, it was like Jesus said, why would I give you more truth when you already rejected basic foundational truths, such as was John's baptism from God or man. I am not giving what is holy to the dogs, throwing my pearls before swine, because you already trampled previous holy teachings or pearls that were given to you. Now, third, it looks, and I'm not trying to be tricky when I say this, it looks like Jesus refused to answer their question, but believe it or not, by not answering, he did answer. And here's what I mean. The statement, I don't have to answer you, or the statement, I don't have to answer to you, 
is a statement about what? Authority. If you say to someone, I don't have to answer you or I don't have to answer to you, that is a comment about authority. You don't have the authority to question me. You don't have the authority to tell me what to do. So Jesus communicated this when he refused to answer. In fact, if you think about it, if Jesus did answer them, ironically, he would have been communicating that they did have authority, authority that they didn't actually have, authority to question the Son of God. And so by not answering, he was showing them that they did not have the authority to be doing this, which showed that he had a greater or higher authority than even the religious leaders who were questioning him. He's shown that he has an even greater or higher authority than the chief priests, scribes, and elders who have no business questioning him. And if anyone did have business questioning him, it would have been them, which shows that his authority did not come from man, but came from God. So even his refusal to respond communicated where his authority came from. I'm sorry if that sounded wordy, but that's about <laughs> the best I can, I can explain it, that his refusal to answer did answer much. Fourth, by refusing to answer, Jesus showed that he didn't have to answer to man or, didn't have the author or they didn't have the authority over him to cause him to answer. Indirectly, he says, you don't have the authority to question me because my authority comes from God. So sometimes we can communicate much more by saying less. And this is a good example with our Savior. Now, as you know from our time going through Luke's gospel, I like to use the other gospels to fill in the details that are not included in Luke. In fact, I even thought if I could go back to when we started Luke, like 37 years ago, then I probably would have taught on the life of Christ because there are times called just a series The Life of Christ because there have been times when I'm preaching through Luke and I know there's this account in one of the other gospels that I didn't get to, to teach. And so I thought once we finish Luke, we'll go back and then go through all four gospels together like that to do the life. No, I'm just kidding. Just nobody even laughed. Maybe you guys are afraid of me doing that. I'm not really sure what, what we're going to do yet. You can be praying when we do finish, finish Luke in four more years. Okay. But anyway, when we're going through Luke, I do like to reference the other Gospels for these accounts to provide or be given a fuller picture. And we can see from verse 6 that the religious leaders were afraid of the people. They said, all the people are going to stone us. Mark's Gospel really spells it out for us. So I, you know, we will not turn back to Luke. Go ahead and turn one book to the left to Mark 11. Look at Mark 11:32. 11, Mark 11:32. But we shall say, or excuse me, this is the religious leader speaking, but shall we say that John's baptism is what they're referring to as from man? Notice this. They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. I want you to notice two things that happened in this account with the religious leaders. First, they disobeyed Jesus. The religious leaders disobeyed Jesus in two ways. First, in questioning him, and then second, in refusing to answer his question. So we see the religious leaders disobey Jesus here, and we also see the religious leaders obey the people. The people would not want them to say that John the Baptist's baptism was not from God, so they refused to answer that. So here's what I want you to notice. In this account, they disobey Jesus and they obey the people. 
They won't say what Jesus wants them to say, but they also won't say what the people don't want them to say. So they're comfortable disobeying Christ, but they're not comfortable disobeying the people. And why is that? Think about that for a moment. Why would the religious leaders be comfortable disobeying Jesus, but they don't want to disobey or do something the people don't want? Because we obey what we fear. And this brings us to lesson three. We obey what we fear. I'll give you examples of this. There's even more. I just didn't want to make a whole, I didn't want to make two sermons of this. But let some of these accounts wash over you and consider the reality of this so you can apply it to your lives and consider why you might obey at times or might disobey at other times and what it communicates about what you do and don't fear in your life. Think about what happened with Saul. So God commands Saul to destroy the Amalekites and he left their king Agag and he also left some number, enough Amalekites alive that the Amalekites later went and raided Ziklag, destroyed the city, captured David and his men's wives and children. So that's how many of the Amalekites Saul failed to destroy. God is grieved. He sends Samuel the prophet to confront Saul about his compromise. 1 Samuel 15, 19, Samuel says to Saul, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, Saul? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? Listen to Saul's excuse, 1 Samuel 15, 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. It sounds good at first. For I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. And then listen, it's all an excuse. All it was was an excuse. He says, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So why did Saul not slaughter all the Amalekites and why did he take their wealth? Because he didn't fear God or he would have obeyed God and because he did fear the people, so he did obey the people. Whatever we fear has power over us. If we fear God, we will obey him. If we fear man, we will obey man. Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's probably our most common response if someone said, why do you obey the Lord? If you're not saved by obeying the Lord, if you're not saved by works or man's righteousness, why do you obey the Lord? And you would say, and this is a wonderful response, is what Jesus himself said, you'll obey me if you love me. You say, because I love Christ. I think of what he's done for me, that he hung on a cross. He took the punishment for my sins. And so I love or I obey because I love. I don't love to be saved. I obey because I am saved. I love because I am saved. But it would be equally true to say that we obey God because we fear him. It would be equally true to say that we disobey God because we don't fear him. A few more examples. Turn to Genesis 22. We won't turn back to Mark. Genesis 22. Look at verse 2. God tells Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, and then notice this, whom you love, Go to the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
God tells Abraham to sacrifice the son he loved. Abraham was willing to do it. God never wanted Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. It was always just a test. So when Abraham passed that test or revealed he was willing to sacrifice Isaac, the angel of the Lord stopped Abraham's knife from coming down. Now look in Genesis 22:12 at what the angel said to Abraham. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, be honest, you didn't expect it to be worded that way, did you? Because God said, take the son whom you love, when Abraham was willing to obey, the angel is going to say, now I know that you love God because you were willing to sacrifice the son whom you love when God commanded you to. It is evident you love God even more than you love this son. And instead, the angel says, now it is evident you feared God. So it was Abraham's fear of God that produced this obedience in his life. Turn to Exodus 1, to the next book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, not because he loved God more than he loved Isaac, although that's true, but because he feared God so much. Exodus 1, here's the context. The Israelites are multiplying in Egypt. Pharaoh becomes afraid of their number afraid that they will overthrow the Egyptians or just take over Egypt. And so look at verse 16 to see the command that Pharaoh wickedly gave to the Hebrew midwives. Exodus 1:16. He says, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, kill that baby son. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Verse 17, look at this. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the midwives were commanded to murder all the Hebrew boys, and it is not right to say that the Hebrew midwives were not afraid of Pharaoh. Don't look at this and say, oh, the Hebrew midwives disregarded what Pharaoh said, because they're not afraid of Pharaoh. If Pharaoh is willing to murder a bunch of baby boys, do you think he's willing to at least punish, but more than likely murder, Hebrew midwives that totally disobey his command? Absolutely. So these Hebrew midwives definitely feared Pharaoh. But who did they fear more? God. And so it didn't matter what Pharaoh said to them, they had even greater, they're like, he might take my physical or earthly life, but I'm more concerned about my eternal life. And so I will disobey Pharaoh to obey God. Turn to Exodus 20. God, here's the context. God brings Israel to the base of Sinai. You might remember how terrifying of an experience this was for Israel. It wasn't all butterflies and sunshine and roses. They get to the base of Sinai, and it was incredibly scary for them. Look in verse 18, Exodus 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder, the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, 
The people were afraid. They trembled. They stood far off. And they said to Moses, they're like, you speak to us. We will listen. But do not let God speak to us or else we're going to die. So they're like, Moses, just you kind of, you mediate. You be the intercessor. We don't want to hear God's voice anymore. You know, what, what do people say sometimes? Oh, I'd love to see God. Oh, I'd love, no, you don't want to see God. Oh, I'd love to hear God's voice. No, you don't want to hear God's voice. It seemed terrifying when people had audiences with God. And this is a good example. God was so terrifying, they thought just his voice would kill them. Now, we know Moses was a great mediator between God and man. So this is when Moses steps in and tries to alleviate the people's fear. This is when Moses says, hey, I get it. You guys just go ahead and calm down. There's nothing to be afraid of. I'll go talk to God for you. I'll fall on my face before him like I do numerous times. I'll ask him to be a little gentler with you because you're so afraid. Look at verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you. Notice this, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Moses wanted them to be terrified of God. He went so far as to say, it is your fear of God that will prevent you from sinning against God. Turn to the right two books to Deuteronomy 8. So Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So turn over two books to the third book, Deuteronomy 8. Moses gives the law to the new generation. So the old generation, this is 40 years after Sinai, the old generation has died in the wilderness, and now Deuteronomy 8 is the renewal of the covenant with the new generation that will enter the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. So Moses said they would obey God if they feared him. There's a lot of other verses I could share with you. I don't want you to flip around a lot. I'll just read a couple. Deuteronomy 31, 12. Moses says, Assemble the people that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. So again, Moses says, if they learn to fear God, then they will be careful to obey God. It is their fear of God that will produce obedience or prevent sin in their lives. Every single time we sin, we have demonstrated a lack of fear of God. We have shown that we do not fear God, or we, at least we don't fear him enough to stop us from sinning in that moment. During Jeremiah's day, the people forsook God. Now, if I think about people forsaking God, I generally associate that with a lack of love. So in Jeremiah's day, the people forsook God. In my mind, I think, well, they must have forsaken God because they just don't love him. There's probably some truth to that, but listen to what else God said. Jeremiah 2.19, your evil will chastise you, your apostasy will reprove you. No one see that it's evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. So God said, you forsook me. He didn't even talk to them about whether they loved him or not. He says, you forsook me simply because you don't fear me. Jeremiah 32, 40, God says, I'll put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn, turn from me. In other words, God says, I will cause them to fear me so they will not forsake me. So here's probably a good way to look at it. Love for God 
is what's going to keep us close to him but it's fear of god that's going to keep us from forsaking him you'll stay close to god because you love him but you won't turn from him or commit apostasy because you're afraid of him every single apostate has shown an incredible lack of fear of god they have shown that they have no fear of god whatsoever david wilkerson said what produces a consistent lasting obedience i'm convinced that godly loving obedience springs from one source fear of the living god i'm going to make a very bold statement i believe it's impossible to consistently walk in obedience and holiness unless you have the fear of god in your heart if you don't have the fear of god you'll eventually believe god's easy on sin you'll think you can sin all you want you'll get a merry-go-round of sin confess sin confess sin confess and you'll say to yourself i'll just run back to jesus and make it right he'll forgive me at one moment now i want to conclude with this verse from the wisest man who ever lived second to christ at least when he reached the end isn't it kind of hard i almost have to qualify it i say the wisest man to ever live second to christ and you know that's but then there's this part of you that's like he was also incredibly foolish so i almost have to say the wisest man who ever lived at least when he got to the end of his life so he reaches the end of his life writes the book of ecclesiastes and then listen to the conclusion of ecclesiastes ecclesiastes 12 13 the end of the matter all has been heard i've said everything that i want to say fear god and keep his commandments and then listen to this this is the whole duty of man that's kind of a surprising statement to me that fearing god and keeping his commandments is the whole duty of man i look at this and i think that's it you know that's my whole duty i have all these other responsibilities being a father being a husband being a pastor being a brother in christ i have so many things to do so many things to keep track of my whole duty is bound up in fearing god and obeying him well why is that because if you fear god that's going to produce obedience that's going to fill every responsibility every relationship you will inevitably be faithful in whatever god wants you to do if you fear him and so i find this very encouraging the simplicity of it it's beautiful to me life can seem very confusing as we're trying to figure out what to do or what not to do but if we have a fear of god then the primary question will always be what does god want me to do what does god not want me to do and it's that fear of god that will produce obedience a pleasing life if you have any questions or i can pray for you in any way i will be up front after service and i consider it a privilege to speak with you father i thank you for your word i thank you for christ's wisdom shown to the religious leaders who were questioning his authority i thank you for being able to fear you we thank you that it produces obedience it's a blessing to be reconciled to you through christ and know that the punishment for our sins has been taken by him that the wrath that was due us was poured out on your son when he hung on that cross but fear of you whether to be disciplined by you is not something that we would ever should ever cease in our lives you would be our heavenly father but as earthly children would still have a healthy reverential fear of their earthly fathers or earthly children would have a have 
uh, reverential fear of their earthly fathers, then I pray that we would have that of our Heavenly Father. So I thank you as your children, Lord, that we would have that fear of you and still it in us. I think of you putting it in the hearts of the Jews in Jeremiah's day. And we pray you would do the same for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.